Hey, I'm Greg Johnson. I'm the lead pastor here at Restoration Church Wood Forest. We want to welcome you to our podcast today. Our mission at Restoration is to empower people to become world changers by releasing them into their full potential in the kingdom of God. So that happens in a lot of ways, but on Sunday mornings, we gather together, we worship passionately, and then we open the word of God and we explore the application and the truth of how God's word can be applied to our lives. And so today, I hope that you enjoy this message from God's word. Hey, we don't want this in any way to be a replacement for church. Let it be a supplement for you. But if you don't have a church home, we would love for you to join us any week at 8 o'clock, 945, and 1130. We hope you enjoy the message. Welcome to Restoration. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Sam. Uh, my wife and I pastor the worship ministry here at the church, and I'm super honored to get to be up here to speak to you this morning. Um, as Greg says, we're continuing our series in the psalm, and this morning we're actually wrapping it up. Um, I know, sad, but uh, we're finishing it off with the most famous of all the psalms. Any of you want to take a guess as to what that is? 23. Way to go. Last, uh, last service I had some mixed answers, and I was like really confused about that because I fought, felt like the question was pretty obvious, <laughs> um, but I digress. That's why 945 is my favorite service, right? You guys are on it. Um, I'm going to say the same thing in the next service, just so you know. Um, <laughs> and to be honest, I've, I've had a lot of difficulty preparing for this message. Uh, from the pressure to include every cross-reference or piece of historical background, to thoroughly exegeting each verse and picture that David paints, to the over-familiarity with the passage and the desire to say something new. If you've ever um, preached before or anything like that, when you're preaching on a on a section of verses that has been well-worn, it's like, what more, what more do you say? I mean, it's like if I was preaching on John 3.16, it's like, what, what can I say that hasn't already been said? And I found through preparing um, for this message, the temptation to try to say something clever or fresh was really prevalent. And I scrapped and rewrote this sermon probably five or six times. Uh, because I noticed, you know, I would start off strong and then I would start including little things that I thought were clever, little one-liners, all that kind of stuff. And by the end of it, I was like, oh man, this is more of me than it is of the Lord. Like, I got to just delete this and start over. So it's pretty discouraging too. It's like if, if you've ever written an essay or something and like by the end of it, you're like, okay, I've just spent five hours on this and I hate it. So I guess I have to start over again. And uh, one night though, I was sitting in bed um, Samantha was asleep, and we had Lord of the Rings, the extended edition, um, on HBO. So I had a good four-and-a-half-hour window um, of inspiration. I just pulled out my laptop, and I just started, just started going. And I felt, I don't know if any of you guys are, are bent towards the creative, but you enter this place, uh, I think scientists call it like the flow state, where you're just like kind of riding the momentum of the moment and thoughts and and uh, connections and all these things start happening really easily. So I was just like, like frantically typing. And then I fell asleep and I woke up the next morning and I read what I had written and I, I still liked it. And so I was like, great, we're on, it, it has passed the next day test. Um, so after all of that, I've come to the conclusion that 
I really just need to share with you what God is sharing with me. What I feel most impressed upon to share with you is an invitation, an invitation to experience the very reality that David describes in the midst of our everyday life. So here is Psalm 23. It says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Um, I want to point out something real quick before we get started. It's important when you read passages, particularly passages that are very familiar. Like how many of you guys have heard Psalm 23 a million times, right? And um, you, you're seeing something that's really familiar, so the tendency is to just breeze through it. It's just, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lay down on green pastures, yada, yada, yada. But I want to encourage you whenever you are reading scripture in the secret place with Jesus to read it slowly. Like, for instance, with Psalm 23, feel free to camp out on one sentence and just sit there with it. Like, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. And let it have its work. Don't just breeze through it. Okay, cool. That, that, I didn't say that the last, the last sermon. I might not say it the next, but I just felt led whenever, because I, I heard some of you reading along with me and you guys were pushing the tempo a little bit. And so I just, I'm gonna rein it back in. It's good to read it slow. Since I began preparing for this sermon, um, I've had a hard time getting past the first verse. And it says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. So much is packed within this phrase. Every benefit that David describes throughout the rest of this chapter is downstream from this reality. I want to state something that might be obvious, but I think it's worth saying. If God is my shepherd, then I am not. If God is my leader, then I am not. If I'm living under God's authority, that means I'm not living under my own. This sounds really good in theory, but it is quite difficult to practice. I can say, the Lord is my shepherd, but when the rubber meets the road, do I live as though I'm the one in charge? When my back's against the wall, do I try to take matters into my own hands? When things take longer than I'd like for them to take, do I try to maneuver towards a more expedient solution? If the answer is yes to those questions, there's a good chance that I'm trying to be the shepherd of my own life. There's also a good chance that I'm swinging on the pendulum between anxiety and numbness, and I'm teetering on the edge of burnout all the time. Does anyone feel like they're in that spot? Man, this is just like the last service. We have like three honest people. Well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna raise my hand for both of us because I feel like I teeter on the edge of burnout all the time um, because I'm not very good at pacing myself because I don't trust in God as my shepherd nearly as much as I should. 
Um, one of the roadblocks we face between us and uh, fully submitting to God's leadership is that we as a modern society have grown suspicious of any and all authority. From government to the church to media to healthcare professionals, CEOs, police officers, military, gone are the days of altruistic public service. Now we as a culture view anyone pursuing a place of authority as someone who simply has a lust for power or money. We see this changing perception around authority in the data when it comes to the wider population's eroding trust in the ability of institutions to do the right thing. Pew Research Center um, issued a graph that shows the trend of the population's trust in the government to do the right thing starting in 1958 to now. Um, and on the vertical columns, you see each president notice um, kind of... Uh, as expected, whichever party's president is in office, their trust in government's a little higher for those four to eight years. Um, but you see, since 1958, it's gone from an average of 73%. Now it's down to an average of 20%. Um, a little closer to home, Lifeway Research released another graphic that showed the eroding trust in pastors um, to be people of integrity since 2001. So it starts around um, 63%. And over the last 20 or so years, it's gone down to 34%. Heck, just this month, we uh, celebrated Independence Day, a day that commemorates when we as a nation rebelled against an oppressive authority. The aversion to authority is baked into the fabric of our culture. The obsession with autonomy is baked into the fabric of our society. We love to be, or we love to think that we are, self-determined individuals that are completely in control of our own fate and destiny. And there's an element to where, yeah, we are responsible for the choices we make. We are responsible to steward our lives in a way that is honoring to the Lord. But the idea that we are solely responsible for the construction of our lives is crippling our culture because we can't bear the weight of that. Only God can bear the weight of that. French existentialist philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre had this to say about authority. He said, you might think that there's some authority you could look to for answers, but all the authorities you can think of are fake. So following this line of thinking, if all authority is in essence fake or hollow, then those who hold positions of authority are simply there out of a quest for power. It's like uh, this Peppa Pig episode. I bet that's not what you thought I was about to say. Um, but my, my son, uh, he loved Peppa Pig. He still says some words in an English accent. And now it's shifting more towards an Australian accent because he watches Bluey. Now, um, which I just, this might be a hot take. I don't think it is, but Bluey's way better than Peppa Pig um, because in Peppa Pig, the dad is a total doofus, um, but in Bluey, the dad is like a very intentional, engaged father. I love it. A anyways, um, back to Peppa Pig. So there's this episode where they were talking about what they wanted to be when they grew up and Peppa said she wanted to be a police officer and they asked her why and her reason was so that she can tell people what to do. And it's funny because this is how we as a society view authority. It's, it, it's not inherent with responsibility or intrinsic with like dignity or anything like that. It's, 
Authority equals I get to tell people what to do. I bet this is probably the first time Peppa Pig has been used to illustrate a French existentialist view on power, but hey, it's a first. Um, I also bet a lot of you didn't think you would be hearing about French, French existentialism in the first 10 minutes either, but I got to keep you all on your toes, you know? The world, on one hand, recognizes the susceptibility of authority and power to manifest itself in oppressive and domineering ways, yet it lacks the ability to imagine a better alternative. One of the places in scripture that we most clearly see the contrast between the abuse of authority and the authority that God operates in is Ezekiel 34. In this chapter, the prophet Ezekiel prophesies against the shepherds of Israel. He says this, starting in Ezekiel 1, we're going to be reading through verse 16. He says, And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God to the shepherds, Woe to the shepherds of Israel who feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fatlings but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, nor have you healed those who were sick, nor bound up the broken, nor brought back what was driven away, nor sought what was lost, but with force and cruelty you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd and they became food for all the beasts of the field when they were scattered. I wanna pause real quick right there and point out how the Lord is telling the shepherds that the sheep are now prey to the the beasts of the field, but the sheep weren't the food for the beasts first. They were the food for the shepherd. See, the shepherds were killing their own flocks so that they could eat, eat them and then clothe themselves with their wool. Rather than taking care and nurturing their sheep, they were consuming them for their own gain. So the remaining sheep were like, <laughs> we're getting out of here. And they're scattered. And now, because the shepherds weren't doing their job, the, the sheep are now prey for the beasts in the field. And you see this in the church. The last few years have been um, tough for the brand, so to speak. There's been a lot of uh, exposure and scandal regarding a lot of major ministries across the world. Documentaries, podcasts, all of that sort of thing. And what you see that's a running theme in all of those things is shepherds aren't acting like shepherds. And you see interviews and interviews and blogs and articles written from scattered sheep who are wounded. And because they don't have a good shepherd, they are scattered and now they're prey for the beast of the field. So whether you are like I don't know, maybe you're a visiting pastor of another church or you're involved in some kind of ministry where you're shepherding people or maybe you're a parent or in some form of leadership. God's style of leadership is shepherding. It's not exclusive to pastors. We are responsible for those that God has given us. That's a weighty thing. Jesus in John 17 in the high priestly prayer, he, sa he says to the Lord that all that you have given me, I have kept. That's a, that's a pretty good thing to be able to say. And this is something that stands in contrast to the, the shepherds in Ezekiel 34 who have scattered their sheep. 
Picking up again in verse six, it says, my sheep wandered through all the mountains and were on every high hill. Yes, my flock was scattered over the whole face of the earth and no one was seeking or searching for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, says the Lord God, surely because my flock became a prey and my flock became food for every beast of the field because there was no shepherd, nor did my shepherds search for my flock but the shepherds fed themselves and did not feed my flock. Therefore, O shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds and I will require my flock at their hand. I will cause them to cease feeding the sheep and the shepherds shall feed themselves no more. For I will deliver my flock from their mouths that they may no longer be food for them. For thus says the Lord God, Indeed, I myself will search out for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock on the day he is scattered among his scattered sheep, so I will seek out my sheep and deliver them from all the places where they were scattered on a cloudy and dark day. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them to their own land. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel in the valleys and on all the inhabited places in the country, I will feed them in good pasture and their fold shall be on the high mountains of Israel. They shall lie down in a good fold and feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock and I will make them lie down. Sound familiar? Says the Lord God. I will seek what was lost and bring back what was driven away. I will bind up the broken and strengthen what was sick, but I will destroy the fat and the strong and feed them in judgment. I don't know about you, but when I read passages like this, I feel a deep inner hunger to be under God's kind of leadership and not under the other kind. When we see how God leads, it dispels the fear and cynicism associated with submission. Where worldly authority, like the shepherds in Ezekiel, are self-serving, domineering, and using others as fodder for their own gain. Godly authority is self-sacrificing, empowering, and seeks the flourishing of others. Jesus puts it this way in Matthew 20, verses 25 through 26. It says, but Jesus called them to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. So Jesus is holding forth these two different methods of leadership, of authority. One is the worldly way, which is the domineering way, which is the way that I'm, I'm exercising the authority that I've been given, right? Like it's, it's the parent's um, and I do this like literally all the time because I don't feel like explaining everything. But like when my son's like, why, why, why? And I'm like, because I told you so. You know, that's, that's like an appeal to authority. It's not act actually like substantive because kind of just go on a quick tangent real quick. Do you guys mind? Um, so appeal to authority is, is fine to like end the situation, but there, I'm, this will happen he's going to reach an age where appeal to authority doesn't work anymore. Maybe, maybe you're a teenager of a parent and you can amen that. Um, but 
Appeal to authority. Appeals to authority don't work forever because you're not actually teaching them to see down the road, right? And so we often get off base because we try to be the shepherds of our own lives. But God's like, hey, I see way further down the road than you do, and you don't actually know that you're on the path to destruction. Like, it's like my son, um, whenever he gets out of the shower, he, uh, he likes to put on his PJs and just sprint around the house for a while. And uh, I'm like, great, now you're all sweaty again, so it's all self-defeating. But um, I'm like, hey, bud, don't run in the kitchen. You can run down the hall, I don't care. But when you turn into the kitchen, you better slow down. Well, one night, he was turning into the kitchen full speed, you know, because he doesn't listen to me. He loves Lightning McQueen, and you probably remember that from my last message. Um, he loves Lightning McQueen, so he's, his constant mantra in his mind is, I am speed. And so he's just like trucking through the kitchen, and he slides and just eats it right into the, right into the oven. And, um, and he starts crying, and I'm just like, you know, I pick him up, comfort, all that kind of stuff. But in my mind, I'm like, dude, I literally just told you to not do that because you would do that if you did it. And he did it. And this is how God shepherds us. He's like, hey, don't do that. And my son probably hears me like, oh, you're trying to rain on my parade. He probably doesn't use that metaphor. But um, he's like, you know, I don't, I don't want to go slow. I want to go fast. So I'm like, okay, but you don't understand the choice that you're making and the ramifications of that choice. And God leads us the same way. We like, we're like, God, I want this, I want this. And God's like, yeah, that's not good for you though. And then we're like, oh God, you're withholding from me. And God's like, yeah, I'm withholding from you for your own good. <laughs> like, I wanna be in the place and I'm not always there. When I'm thankful for the prayers that God answers no to, because I pray for a lot of things and not all of them happen. And in the moment, I'm kind of bummed about it, right? And I think, well, maybe I just need to like use a different combination of words to get you to answer my prayer in the way that I want. <laughs> Thinking that like, I feel like a four-year-old when that thought goes to my mind because it's like, it's like when Hudson asks me for something and I say no and then he goes and asks mom, you know, or vice versa. And I'm like, hey bro, I know what you're doing. You know, anyway, sorry, the parent analogies are endless, but um, yeah, we, we come up with these scenarios and then we, we get mad at God when our plan and his plan don't intersect. We hold God accountable for our missteps. And that's like, that's way off base. So anyways, that was... That was a, a fairly long tangent. We're going to get back to the message. <laughs> Following David's acknowledgement of God being his shepherd, he declares that he shall not want. Another translation says, I lack nothing. These statements are not standalone bullet listed ideas, but rather they are intimately connected. It is because God is David's shepherd that he experiences no want or lack. For me, this is a, another one of those ideas that could be left in the realm of like this cute theological concept. But it finds zero ground in my real life. What I mean is that I often experience lack. I experience want. I, I feel like I have a lack of time, a lack in finances, a lack in peace, a lack in patience, a lack in self-control, 
a lack in motivation, a lack in purpose. And the list goes on and on. I see someone driving a, a nicer car than me and I think through the ways that I can get to where they are. I go over to someone's house in, in Wood Forest and think how my house isn't as nice as theirs and wonder how I could afford to be living where they live. I see pictures from other people's vacation while one kid is climbing on me and the other is screaming at me. And I can't help but feel like something's missing, like there's something being withheld from me. But society conditions us to live in a perpetual state of wanting. Whether that's likes on social media, keeping up with the Joneses, commercials that sell products as lifestyles. Isn't that so silly? Do you ever like watch commercials and like really pay attention to what they're saying to you? Like, like oh, here's this truck. It's awesome. But then the tagline's like, live free. And it's like, What? It's just a car. Like, what are you talking? If by free you mean like $700 a month payments at 7% APR, like that doesn't sound free to me. Um, but they sell you on the idea of a lifestyle when really it's just a product. And we're all, because we're all craving purpose and meaning in our life. And so they know that. Advertisers are smart, just so you know. And they're smarter than a lot of, a lot of us. <laughs> And there's algorithms and AI and all that sort of stuff that is there solely to make you feel like you need something, to put you in a state of wanting, right? It's like, I, I saw a sign recently that they were like already like advertising what the Black Friday sales are going to be. I'm like, you know, I walked through HEB and I already smelled pumpkin spice. And I'm like, guys, <laughs> they're, see, they're already cultivating. And I love pumpkin spice. I love lighting some pumpkin candles in my house and making it feel all cozy and folly. But, like, it's July. Give us a break, you know, before making us need to buy something again. But uh, what ends up happening is, is I create scenarios in my head about what I think I need. And then I hold God accountable to those standards when they aren't met. And this sort of thing goes all the way back to the garden when the serpent tempted Eve by making her believe that God told them not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because he was holding out on them, not because he was actually doing what was best for them. When we realize that all that God does toward us is for our good, we won't be enticed towards the sin of acquiring in our own strength what he has withheld in his goodness. I want to challenge you that whenever you feel anxious, whenever you feel like you're drowning in a sea of lack, when there's more money going out than coming in, when you don't know how to make all the pieces of your life fit together, take a moment and say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Over and over again until you feel it reach the deepest places of unbelief in your heart. Now, I want to throw out a disclaimer to this. Saying that phrase over and over and over again is not going to fix all your problems. If you feel like you have a lack of money, saying that over and over again won't magically cause a million-dollar check to sit in your mailbox. Although that'd be awesome, <laughs> right? Um, what it will do is it will slowly chip away 
at this thing inside of you that wants and feels like it has to figure out every problem. You're, um, you're reestablishing the pecking order of your life when your mantra becomes, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Every time I face a problem, hey, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Every time I see something nicer than the thing that I have, hey, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Meaning, if I'm wanting for something, I'm wanting for something outside of what God's will for my life is right now. Like, you have everything you need right now. God has given you everything you need to make it right now. If you, if you didn't have that, you wouldn't be here. You might not feel like you have enough or you might be confused as to what wants and needs are. Hey, we're all there, no shame in that. Like, can I just start, I'm just gonna talk about my son again. Um, Cause I, I love him. By the way, after the last service, he came up and gave me this. If you're watching Hudson, I love it, thanks. Um, I don't know what it is, but it's awesome. <laughs> um, he like freaked out on me one morning because he wanted to bring his balloon to school. And I was like, hey, bud, you can't like, I'm like, why do you want to bring your balloon to school? And he's like, I need to. And I was like, well, maybe we can more accurately define need. I don't think you need to. I think you want to. And he's like, no, I need to. Like there was, this was high stakes. Like he had to bring his, and I'm like, buddy, if you bring that balloon to school, it's going to last like two seconds. It's going to pop. Right. And I didn't let him bring it. And he cried like a lot, but like us, sometimes we are not able to distinguish between wants and needs. God has given you everything you need right now. Sometimes we're too busy to see that though. We're too busy running in the direction of trying to fulfill our own needs that we miss God standing right here saying, I actually have everything you need right here, right now. If you would just pause for a second. I'm not good at pausing. I don't know about you. Maybe, maybe you're more spiritual than I am, but man, when I start getting anxious, all the wheels start turning. I start trying to think of all the solutions, what I can do right now, rasticisms, all that sort of thing. And you know how many times that's worked out in my life? zero. You think I would learn by now, but we're pretty stubborn. We're a pretty stubborn folk. Um, when we recognize our lack of lack, we also recognize that we are free to rest. Conversely, if, if we are always wanting, we will not be resting. And wanting doesn't have to mean material things or finances. It could mean the approval of others. It could mean the place where your sense of self-worth is tied to what you do. In the same way, our wanting reveals something about our submission to God as shepherd. Our ability to rest speaks to our willingness to submit to God's leadership. A lack of rest is merely a symptom of a deeper problem. A few months ago, Samantha and I, we started um, trying to set aside an entire day where we Sabbath together. And what our Sabbath looks like, at least right now, is we get up at like seven in the morning, we get Hudson dressed, and we go to flag football. And I'm the assistant coach, so you can just imagine that. Um, we lost yesterday, 
So I found myself really irritable after that for some reason. I was like, I'm taking four-year-old flag football way too seriously. Um, but anyways, we spend the morning together. I make a really great breakfast, and uh, we just hang out. And we spend time intentional with family. Try not to do social media, emails, any of that kind of stuff. And then for the last few weeks, we've been blowing up a big air mattress in our living room and letting Hudson pick a movie and watch it from start to finish. And then I make a pizza, which, guys, I make pretty good pizza, just saying. Um, but I say all that to say, one thing I noticed is during these Sabbath days, the amount of times, because my goal is to not get on social media, and I'm not very successful at that sometimes, but... What I find myself doing is reaching in my pocket, unlocking my phone on my home screen, seeing the, like, the little uh, icon for Instagram or Facebook or something, and then realizing, oh, not today. But, which is great that I do that, but um, the thing that I want to point out is how conditioned we are to like, boom, unlock. I saw a stat on my phone that like the average, the average amount of times we unlock our phones a day is over a thousand, which is wild. If you look at screen time, you know the average screen time for teenagers is like nine hours? Sometimes I hit three hours and 45 minutes, and whenever I hang out around there, I am so much more anxious during the day. I can't imagine being at like nine hours. I mean, the only time I've ever done like nine hours is when I'm in, stuck in an airport and there's nothing else to do. But these, these things that are bombarding us all the time with stimulation and shortening our attention spans to not be longer than 10 seconds, it's conditioning our hearts to constantly be in a state of wanting. And this isn't just like a, I know I said the teenage uh, you know, phone time average, but this is like older people too. Like my dad, who's 73, is like on his phone all the time. Doing what? I don't know. Maybe he's like playing Farmville or whatever. I'm not sure. Um, But we are constantly being bombarded with stimulants that we are not able to handle. And so this affects our prayer life. Like when we get in the secret place and we go, oh, I'm going to pray. But like, Seven seconds in, I'm like way off in left field thinking about something else. You know, I can't stand quiet because quiet makes me feel anxious because I'm always used to being stimulated with something. You know what I mean? Like the regular practice of Sabbath will be the hardest thing that you do because everything in our culture is facing the other way. Everything in our culture is saying you got to do more, you got to be more, you got to produce more. And Sabbath says, you know what? Actually, God produces. Like, like what Paul says, like, I water the seed, someone plants the seed, you know, all this kind of stuff, but it's God who actually brings the increase. And this is what God was instituting in the Sabbath in Genesis and creation and then in the law of Moses. Sabbath was there so that our dependence on God would be brought to the forefront. That, hey, for six days, you can work, you can produce, you can do all those things, have at it. But on the seventh day, you don't do anything because I want you to see that life goes on whether you do it or not. That you have what you need regardless of your own effort, because I provide. We also 
see this in the teachings of Jesus, how the themes of rest and submission to God's leadership are intertwined. In Matthew 11, verses 28 through 29, it says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see that in verse 29, it says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. A lot of us want the rest for our souls, but not the take on the yoke part. We want the sweets, but we don't want the vegetables, right? But we can't have one without the other. You can't find rest for your soul apart from submission to the leadership of Jesus in your life. We, are, we cannot generate peace. We can't generate rest. But Jesus offers it to us freely. In order to experience the rest we so desperately long for, we must first submit to the leadership of God in our lives and abandon our efforts of trying to live out of our own strength. This is the reality that David is writing about and it is the reality that Jesus, who is the good shepherd, invites us into. When we submit our lives under the leadership of Jesus, we find our internal world begins to be set right. We move from this place of being inwardly dislocated and led by disordered desires and into a place of wholeness and peace. This is what Dallas Willard calls the renovation of the heart. David describes it as his very soul being restored as his shepherd leads him in paths of righteousness. We see the further evidence of this inward transformation as David begins to describe his journey through the valley of the shadow of death. All of us, at some point or multiple points in our lives, will go through the valley of the shadow of death. Whether you're following Jesus or not, you will walk through it. What distinguishes followers of Jesus from the rest of the world is that we can say, like David, that though we go through the valley of the shadow of death, we don't have to fear. Why? Because you are with me. It's not because I'm good at not fearing. I'm horrible at not fearing. I'm, I'm, like a, I'm a pessimist. I'll say it that way. I tend to think things won't work out. As soon as, I'm, as soon as I even see the valley of the shadow of death, I'm like, oh, God, here we go again, you know? But if I actually recognize and believe that in the place of the valley of the shadow of death that God is with me, then I know like, man, this might be painful. This might be hard. I don't know how long this valley is. I can't run through the valley. But though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, even if I have to crawl, I know you're with me. So I don't have to fear. David then says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Again, this touches a nerve for those who don't like authority or correction. But what David is saying in light of the previous verses is that because I know you're for me and you know what's best for me, I trust your discipline. I take your correction as redemption. See, it's hard to listen to criticism when it comes from someone who might not have your best interest at heart. But when you come to a deep place of knowing that all of God's correction 
points you towards the direction of life, you will embrace the discipline. I just want to say something. I don't think this is controversial, but we'll see. Um, there's, a, uh, there's an often cited thing when it comes to Psalm 23 and any shepherding motif in Scripture that, you know, um, if the sheep wander too much, the shepherd will do what? Break its legs and carry it back? Um, I just want to let you guys know that there's zero historical evidence for that. And the first time that's ever mentioned in history is in 1957 in a sermon by a Baptist minister. That's the first time it's ever mentioned in history ever. Um, and if you read interviews of people who are actually shepherds, they talk about how ridiculous that idea is because in maiming the sheep, you're actually making him more susceptible to predators. <laughs> and even more than that, you're putting the entire flock in danger. So I just want to say that God's correction of your life, it's his kindness that leads you to repentance. God doesn't come in with this iron fist and break your legs so that he can drag you back to his will. That's just so silly. God is going to continue to be good to you until your own disobedience is so unbearable that you give in to his kindness. That's the kind of shepherd he is. So, email Greg if you got a problem with that, I guess. <laughs> the chapter after this shifts away from the sheep shepherd picture and moves towards the guest and host motif. In this, David describes God as a banquet host who throws a lavish party for him in the presence of his enemies. That God anoints his head with oil and gives him a cup that is so full it begins to spill over. When I first read this, I thought the anointing of the oil part was like because David was king, you know? But if you look in Luke, uh, when Jesus is invited to uh, dine at a Pharisee's house and the woman comes with the alabaster jar and breaks it open and starts washing his feet with her tears and wiping it up with her hair and anointing his feet with the oil, um, the Pharisees get really disgusted about this. Um, because they say, if he would have known what kind of woman it was that was doing this, he would never allow it to happen. And then Jesus kind of rebukes them for not being good hosts. And in his rebuke, he goes, when I, when I entered into your house, you didn't greet me with a kiss. And you didn't anoint my head with oil. And when I read that, I was like, oh, that's what David's talking about. He's not talking about being anointed as king. He's talking about, I'm a guest in the house of the Lord. And when you enter into someone's house back then, it's like their servants would be the ones who were anointing you. Their servants would be the one washing your feet. Their servants would be doing this, right? But when we enter into the house of God, it's God himself who anoints your head. It's Jesus in John 13. It's, it's God himself who washes your feet. This is incredible. We move on from the first four verses that speak to inward realities to verse five where we see outward manifestations of God's goodness and faithfulness. Similar to the valley of shadows, David doesn't fear being in the presence of his enemies because he knows that God is present even there. This idea crescendos in verse six when he proclaims that God's goodness and mercy will follow him all the days of his life. 
that no matter the circumstance or situation, whether he's with friends or enemies, enjoying the pleasures of life or walking through the valley of death, God's goodness is present with him every step of the way. This reminds me of what Paul says in Romans 8, verses 38 and 39. He says, For I am persuaded that neither life nor death, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's good news. As we close today, maybe you find yourself unable to identify with the statements that David is making. The cry of your heart is to experience what he's talking about, but you're just weighed down by too many things. Maybe you feel yourself constantly wanting, neglecting rest, relying on your own strength. Maybe you find yourself gripped by fear. Maybe you have no sense of the presence of God. Maybe you run away from anything that could be deemed correction. Maybe you avoid your enemies at all costs. Maybe you've cut yourself off from any opportunity to experience God's faithfulness. You don't think God is faithful because you avoid situations where you need him to be. Maybe you resonate with this prayer from a book called Praying Like Monks and Living Like Fools. It says this, Holy One, there is something I wanted to tell you, but there have been errands to run, bills to pay, arrangements to make, meetings to attend, friends to entertain, washing to do, and I forget what it is that I wanted to say to you, and mostly, I forget what I'm about and why. Oh God, don't forget me, please, for the sake of Jesus Christ. Eternal one, there is something I wanted to tell you, but my mind races with worrying and watching, with weighing and planning, with rutted slights and pothole grievances, with leaky dreams, leaky plumbing, and leaky relationships that I keep trying to plug up. My attention is preoccupied with loneliness, with doubt, with things that I covet and I forgot what it is I wanted to say to you and how to say it honestly or how to do much of anything at all. Oh God, don't forget me, please, for the sake of Jesus Christ. Almighty one, there is something I wanted to ask you, but I stumble along the edge of a nameless rage haunted by a hundred floating fears of terrorists of all kinds, of losing my job, of failing, of getting sick and old, having loved ones die, of dying. And I forget what the real question is that I wanted to ask. And I forget to listen anyway because you seem unreal and far away. And I forget what it is that I have forgotten. Oh God, don't forget me, please, for the sake of Jesus Christ. Oh Father in heaven, perhaps you've already heard what I wanted to tell you. What I wanted to ask is forgive me, heal me, Increase my courage, please. Renew in me a little of love and faith and a sense of confidence and a vision of what it might mean to live as though you were real and that I mattered and everyone was my brother or sister. 
what I wanted to ask in my blundering way is don't give up on me. Don't become too sad about me, but laugh with me and try again with me and I will with you too. What I wanted to ask is for peace enough to want and work for more, for joy enough to share, for awareness that is keen enough to sense your presence here, now, there, then, always. Amen. The invitation this morning is to submit your life to God, to bring your whole life before him, to allow him to be your shepherd, to lay down your own strength, to lay down your own ability, your own cleverness, your own proclivity to try to figure out all of your own problems. The invitation is to lay all of that down at his feet. To lay all the cares of this life on the altar that you've been trying to manage yourself. To crucify your autonomy and to experience the presence of your shepherd who is present this morning to give you everything you need. I want to invite you as we move into a time of communion to come to the altar, to lay down those things, to lay down the worries and fears of life. And like First Peter says, to cast all of your cares upon him because he cares for you. Now I know because I'm a fairly self-conscious person, you probably are too. Maybe coming down, being the first one to come down to the altar, maybe that's a little like, oh, I don't want to be that first one. But honestly, one, who cares? <laughs> like Greg says, I think he might say this every week. No one is thinking about you. They're only thinking about themselves, right? <laughs> who cares? Two, you coming down might be the thing that pricks someone else's heart to come down, which might be the thing that pricks someone else's heart to come down, so forth and so on. And it's not about, it's not about these steps. It's about the steps that you take out of your own strength and out of your own ability and into the rest and green pasture that God has secured for you and is offering you this very moment. So as we get up and take communion with our families, ask God, to highlight any area of your life that is not submitted to his leadership, that is not submitted to him as Lord and come to the altar and lay it down. Walk away free of the burden of trying to figure your own life out. 